Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, Presidents Emmanuel Macron and Donald Trump have agreed to a truce in their dispute over digital taxes. This will prevent any punitive tariffs through the end of the year. Now, is the agreement lasting or merely delaying an inevitable conflict? Well, joining us now, I'm delighted to say, is the French finance minister. His, uh, he is uh, Bruno Le Maire. Monsieur Le Maire is holding talks this afternoon also with Steve Mnuchin and the OECD Secretary General. So, Minister, thank you for, for joining us. How do you describe the current relationship between Europe, France specifically, and the U.S.? I think that uh, due to the uh, very good phone call between President Trump and President Macron, we are uh, now in a good mood, a good mood for negotiating and try to find a compromise between the US and France, between the US and Europe. I think that the, the choice is quite clear. Either we go the way of having many national taxes everywhere in the world, especially in Europe. You already have the French national taxation on uh, digital activities, but you also have the British, the Italian, the Spanish, the Austrian thinking about that possibility or having also decided a national taxation. Or you go the way of an international solution. And I really think that this is in the interest of both the United States and Europe to pave the way for compromise to decide about an international digital taxation by the end of 2020 because it would be far more efficient and it would be fairer. But, Minister, do you think you will get a digital tax resolution, an agreement, whatever we call it, this afternoon, and will that avoid a trade war? Is, is it a, a, you know, we either get an agreement or actually it's going to be a tough, tough environment between the EU and the US? We are working on an agreement with uh, Stephen Minushin. We have an excellent relationship with uh, Stephen Minushin, and I hope that we can get a compromise in, uh, in a few hours. Entering into a trade war between the US and Europe would be foolish. It would be a stupidity, both from an economic and a political point of view. So everyone is trying to make a move in the direction of the other for the sake of finding a compromise, working on an international solution and avoiding a trade war. Nobody wants a trade war between the US and Europe. Okay, but has France agreed to suspend digital tax until the end of the year? France has agreed on one single thing. We have a national taxation. Under the national taxation on digital activities, all the companies, either the American, but the European or the Chinese ones, have to prepay in April and in November 2020. We are ready to postpone the prepayment of April and November till the end of the year with the view of finding an international solution. And if there is an international solution at the end of 2020, in that case, we would get rid of the national taxation mm -hmm. and replace the national taxation by the international solution. But, uh, Minister, is this to avoid tariffs that President Trump has said he would impose on France and on Europe? And if it is, is the message we're sending that actually tariffs work, the threat of tariffs from the US work? It would be the case if we would have decided to withdraw our taxation, but we have not decided to withdraw our taxation. We have just proposed not to have the prepayment of April, not to have the prepayment of November, and postpone all the payments till the end of December with clearly the purpose of having 
an international solution by the end of 2020. And, and you can see that this is a fair compromise, this is a move in the direction of the US concern, and this paves the way for a compromise at the OECD level. And if we are ready to go this way, we would have one single international taxation of all digital activities instead of having many national taxations all over the world. Uh, but Minister, what will it take for the US to tax their companies, their tech companies, fairly? But you know, this is one key point. I want to make clear to our American friends that the national French taxation is not a discriminatory one. It's not against the US companies. It's a taxation on digital activities because the digital companies are making huge profits and paying less taxes. Nobody can accept that. But you have in the scope of the French taxation, American companies, European ones, and Chinese ones. This is not a discriminatory option. Uh, do all countries in Europe need to spend more fiscally to get us out of this growth, but slow growth that we're seeing, to, for the trend to really take hold? Slow, slow growth and the slowdown in uh, the Eurozone is a failure for all of us. Nobody can be satisfied with an average level of growth of around 1, 1.2. This is not enough. It is not enough to fund uh, the fight against climate change. This is not enough to ensure prosperity for our citizens and to create new jobs. So once again, I'm calling to support the monetary policy by a more ambitious fiscal policy in all the countries that do have the fiscal space to do so. This is the case for Germany, and I've been discussing the point with my friend Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, many times. We have an excellent relationship, but on this very specific point, I'm just asking Germany to spend more public money because they do have the fiscal space. When France is taking very difficult decisions to improve its economic situation, and to improve its economic model. I think that's also a fair and balanced deal. On the one hand, those who do have the fiscal space should invest more, and France that, have, that has to uh, introduce strong reforms will continue to introduce very strong reforms. But do you believe Germany will do so? When you speak to German officials, they say, well, we're already doing a lot in green bonds, so they feel at this point that they've done enough. I fully recognize that they have done more, and uh, I take that into account, of course. This is the truth. Um, the German government has decided to spend some more money. I'm deeply convinced that they can do more and that it would be better for growth in Germany and growth within the Eurozone. When I'm talking to the CEOs of uh, German companies, I think that the CEOs of German companies, many of them, are waiting also for more investments from the German government. Well, when you look at uh, Europe and France, a lot of international investors look at the strikes that have been going on. Once the pension reform is actually 100% dealt with, what comes next? And are you worried that actually France is, is not ready to be fully reformed? I'm not worried. I think that we are on the right track. Of course, we are facing difficulties. But we are facing difficulties because we are introducing strong reforms. We have already uh, reformed the taxation system in France with a total overhaul of the French taxation system for the sake of having more money for innovation mm -hmm. and investment. We have also introduced a very important reform on uh, the labor market. And now this is time to uh, have a full overhaul and refoundation of the French pension system. 
which is based on solidarity. We uh, will stick to that reform and stick to that willingness because this is a matter of justice. You know, in our reform, all the people that are less paid will have better pensions. And that's exactly the purpose of uh, this reform. We are facing social difficulties, we are facing strikes, but uh, you know, we will not spare our efforts to convince the French people that this reform is a fair one and a necessary one. Can France benefit from Brexit? Have you seen you know, an attraction of talent to, to France, Paris and elsewhere? First of all, France will benefit and is already benefiting from its reforms. When you are looking mm. at the situation, we have one of the best level of growth within the Eurozone, 1.3. This is not enough, but we are in the right direction. We are creating jobs. This is also a very good result coming from the decisions taken by President Macron and taken by uh, the government. As far as the Brexit is concerned, uh, we want to keep a very strong and positive bilateral relationship with the UK. I, I deeply regret the decision taken by the UK to go out of the EU. But on one very specific point, which is finance, our strategic purpose is to become, within the Eurozone, the first financial centre. We want to be very attractive. And when you are looking at the very last decision of many important banks like JP Morgan, the fact that they are putting some new jobs, 450 for JP Morgan in Paris, is very good news for France. But what if the UK don't follow the European regulation? I know that you know, we're going to start into this debate, but what if you, if you have huge competition? Rules right? are <laughs> rules. And I've been explaining that to uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, we have, once again, a very good relationship. We want to build in a positive matter the future between the UK and France, the UK and Europe. But everybody can understand that the rules of the single market will remain the rules of the single market. And we do not want to take any kind of decision that might jeopardize or weaken the rules of the single market. Minister, thank you so much for your very thoughtful analysis on some of these points. French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire. It has become an annual visit at Davos, and of course we're doing this with the president scheduled to have a press conference here. Uh, I'm going to say 45 minutes, maybe a little bit longer than that. Scheduled to leave here in the New York 6 o'clock hour, but I'm told that may be delayed because Elaine Chow has to get from our set back to be sure the president gets on Air Force One uh, with grace. Secretary Chow, thank you so much for joining us again. Great to be here. We have a three-hour conversation with you that we're going to cram into a generous <laughs> two blocks as well. I do want to speak on your Taiwan. You are the great voice of the Taiwanese in uh, America. I want to go right now with Viviana just mentioning Boeing to the reality I and all Americans saw. This is the reality. Major U.S. newspaper, small little article. I'm going to pick on American Airlines. I might get the airline wrong. The stewardesses, the flight attendants are afraid to get on a 737 MAX. Did, blowing, did Boeing blow it? because they didn't realize that emotion in that newspaper. Our concern at the Department of Transportation is always safety. Safety is number one. So when this 737 MAX plane was grounded on March 13th, uh, the FAA is a data-based organization. Yeah. And their data showed that it was necessary to ground that plane. To restore ground in you know, ungrounding rights to this plane 
uh, requires a great deal of preparation. For us at the Department of Transportation mm -hmm. and at the FAA, there's no timetable. Okay, Our first and foremost concern always is okay. safety, and I'll explain why. Because there are two, what you mentioned is very important. If the consuming public, if the passengers- It's there. Yeah, is, does not have confidence in this plane, they will not go does on this plane. Does Boeing, with all of your conversation- Let, me, tell you, let me just finish on number see, two. See how she's doing this, she's so no, practiced, yeah. continue. No, 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 let me, this is important, because yeah. we need to, this needs to be a collaborative effort. We are working with international aviation authorities. They need to work with us. We need to work with them. Because if other aviation authorities don't have the confidence and don't allow the Boeing 737s to fly, then we cannot fly. Boeing cannot did fly Boeing, these planes. Madam Secretary, did yeah. Boeing misjudge the American public? I think it's always, always important to understand your customer. And so, again, I'm just going to say, from our point of view, safety is number one. There is no timetable. We want this plane to be safe. And the issue here is safety. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Secretary, you, you, I mean, we have this bizarre situation where we have the FAA saying that actually the plane will be ready to fly. And we have no, the FAA has never said that. No, the FAA has never said that. We have a new FAA administrator. Uh, he's just come on board on August 12th of this year. He's a very experienced uh, pilot, and he ran uh, aviation uh, operations for major airlines. Okay. So. Let, you're right. Let me rephrase it. So there are countries that came out and saying even if the FAA lets this plane fly, they may not follow suit. Oh, we understand the FAA that. Which is, ha has lost credibility in the I eyes of not. other regulators. I hope not. We work. The FAA works very, very hard to still remain the gold standard of aviation safety. You know, the FAA has traditionally been a leader. And in fact, it, through its practices, lifted up the record and the standard for aviation safety throughout the world. So they are very cognizant of their leadership role, and we want to work. We, meaning the U.S. Department of Transportation and the FAA, want to work with our international partners because their trust, their confidence, is very critical. But, Secretary, has the FAA become too deferential to manufacturers I don't think and so. airlines? I don't think so. I think if you look at the raft of emails that have come out, which are mm -hmm. actually quite disturbing, quite uncomplimentary. The emails, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. They show a derisive mm -hmm. factor, a disdain for the regulators, which I think is a problem. I, and I don't want to talk about the dinner table with the Senate Majority Leader, but I do want to speak about what you, as a Washington pro, are hearing from our legislators about giving up the great American franchise of engineering, which is the Boeing of Seattle. Whole debate whether they should have moved to Chicago. Are we at risk of sacrificing engineering trust to Airbus? Absolutely not. Uh, I think most airline airliners would like to have more than one airline manufacturer, number one. Number two, uh, you know, Airbus has a full uh, backlog of orders. If you wanted to order a plane today, you would have to wait four years. Mm -hmm. And so the backlog is quite extensive. So I think we're not at that stage. We are working with the international aviation authorities and the communities. Uh, we, right. you know, their opinions mean I, a lot. I, I want Secretary Chao uh, to be sure that we never get rid of the Boeing 747. That's her major. T don't get rid of the glorious old planes. But how close is the 737 Max? You know, when is it going to be cleared to fly again? How close are we to that? Well, again, we're not making any 
predictions. We're not having any timetables because, again, to us, safety is number right. one. The, and the families of those uh, who love, lost loved ones, they deserve that. Mm -hmm. um, have you spoken to Elon Musk about his projects when it comes to Hyperloop? I've talked to Elon Musk about many other projects. Yeah. He's very interesting. So he's talked about, like, flying well, cars, for example. Uh, we're, we're, I, I talked you know, to him about that. You know, he is so prescient and so far-sighted. He's talking good. about uh, a, a vision that I couldn't even imagine well, when, when I first talked done, to him about it. We're done with the interim guy. We'll come back to you. But the hyperloop is very important. I can talk okay. more about that well, if you want as well. We're going to come back here and talk about so many other important topics, yes. including Taiwan. What we're going to do is go to break, and I do want to come back to you and talk about transportation, and particularly the railroads, and also, of course, uh, what we see uh, in China. Secretary Chow, thank you so much for joining us here at Davos thank you. Uh, today thank as well. Very wonderful. Mm -hmm. John Farrell and fun. Tom Keene, and we're here with David Rubenstein as well. Much, much going on. We welcome all of you this morning, of course, recovering from a, a lengthy presidential press conference, a lot of different topics there. We'll touch on that with David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group as well, co-founder and co-chairman, but far more media tycoon with his peer-to-peer, -peer, which has been on Bloomberg here to great success as well. This is an interesting valley. Who in the valley is on the Rubenstein wish list? of peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, I know you want to talk to Greta, everybody else does well, but what, who, where's the dream interview for Rubenstein in uh, Happy Valley? Well, I've never interviewed you. I think that would be That would be, that frightening. Would be a dream uh, interview, you know, I, really? I think it would be a change, and I'd like to interview you. Um, so, um, you know, I have some questions. Uh, <laughs> so do some other people. You're not alone. <laughs> so uh, uh, there are a lot of interesting CEOs and heads of state here. Some of them do interviews, some don't do interviews. So. Uh, right. You know, we've had, I think here, there's uh, several British prime ministers. Boris Johnson's here. Um, I think Theresa May is here. Tony Blair is here. Uh, David Cameron's here. So that'd be interesting to get all four of them on a panel, wouldn't it? I want to talk about a panel I would have with you right now, maybe a few others within the Carlisle world, and that is this strange word, scale. Where is scale going within our transactions and our combinations? Well, scale has... Uh, for a while, before the Great Recession, buyout sizes were fairly big, and some of those didn't work out, the biggest ones. Then we went through the recession, and people have been nervous about doing too large a pure buyout, though the biggest buyouts have ever done, uh, some of them have worked out. Um, I saw Michael Dell, he's here, and he did maybe the biggest buyout, maybe one of the most successful ever. But generally, buyouts have been recent years, and the big ones have been in the 5 to $10 billion range. There have been very few 15, 20 billion dollar ones. Some are now reported to be uh, being considered, but uh, it's harder to do a 15, 20, 25 billion dollar buyout. David, talk to me about how much things have changed over the last several decades, and go back to when you started and what it was like. There's more firms with more money doing more of the things that you've always been doing. Does that make it harder? Well, there's a bifurcation. There, when I started Carlisle, there were 250 private equity firms in the world. Now there are 8,500. But there are three or four that are really at the very largest size, and there are maybe another 10 that can do very large deals as well. And so those are seeing the biggest deals and getting the best financing and so forth. So it's different. Uh, the biggest changes since I started Carlisle with others is, uh, one, there are more investors interested in this, retail as well as sovereign wealth funds, which didn't really exist that much before. Secondly, the large private equity firms are now publicly traded. And so they have their own um, 
public uh, you know, following. You also see the large private equity firms doing more than private equity, private credit, infrastructure, real estate. So they're diversified a fair bit. And those are some of the biggest changes. But also, rates of return have come down. It used to be in private equity, people wanted net internal rates of return of 20%. Today, if you can get net internal rates of return of 15% per annum, people were happy with that because interest rates are so low. I'm told now that raising capital is the easy part. Deploying it is a whole lot tougher. Is that the right way of thinking about things at the moment? Well, the people that have to raise the money don't say it's easy, <laughs> uh, but it's not as hard as it has been historically because private equity has now been accepted as a real asset mm -hmm. class. It's not alternative. It's mainstream in many ways. And also, the sovereign wealth funds and the U.S. public pension funds have so much money, and they've made so much money on public equity returns and also private equity returns, they have to deploy it and they're giving it to private equity firms in part because they see it as a hedge against the recession. If it ever happens, people think that private equity firms can work through the recession the way they did last time reasonably well. What is your counsel to the successful tech firms? Your wonderful interview uh, a few years ago with Jeff Bezos and others. They have an immense challenge of ample free cash flow above average revenue growth as a general statement as well. What is the Rubenstein to-do list for them strategically to get out 10 years? Well, it's amazing what the, the tech companies have done. Um, just take Tim Cook. Uh, when he took over, it was about a $350 billion market cap. It's now about $1.3 trillion, more or less. Uh, I was talking Adding $100 billion a week. We'll right. Yeah, yeah. Satya Nadella, when he took over, maybe market cap of $350 to $400 billion now, about $1.2 or $3 trillion. Um, these sizes are just staggering. and. Uh, you know, Herb Stein, the famous uh, member of the U.S. Uh, Council of Economic Advisors under President Nixon, once said, if something can't keep going on forever, it won't. So at some point, at some point, I don't know when, uh, it probably can't keep going on at this size. Generally, when you have something, something this big and you have it this profitable, usually the U.S. government comes along and says, hey, you're having too much fun here. We need to do something about that. But that doesn't seem to be happening right now. Let's talk about what has happened over the last year. Some red flags coming out of private markets as they look to come public, and the biggest one was WeWork. Lessons learned from last year, what are they? Well, I think uh, when you have a fund that is very, very, very big, uh, like the SoftBank fund, the Vision fund, um, you have to deploy large amounts of capital, and you can probably put too much money into one deal. And I think in that particular case, it appears that a lot of money was put in at probably a higher valuation should be the case. And then there were other concerns as well about corporate governance and so forth. But, you know, there are mistakes that are made in every generation. This wasn't the first time this kind of thing has ever happened. It won't be the last. But I think a lot of people have learned something right. from that deal. David Rubenstein, you are a great student of this nation's history. We had an extraordinary press conference from the President of the United States today. You've contributed to Ford's Theater, to the wonderful museum next to it. You've greatly contributed to our Library of Congress as well. What is your study? of how this nation moves forward from the process of impeachment? Well, it's a very strange situation. If you were to come into this planet from Mars and say... Or from second, England. Or from England or any place and say, <laughs> you have a president of the United States who's being impeached, only the third president who's been impeached, and a trial is going on in the Senate, yet the economy is going along very well, the business community seems to be not affected by the, what's going on in the Senate right now. I was at the breakfast with the president this morning before the press conference, and it was clear that the business community is pretty supportive of his policies. You know, so I, 
it's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of uh, explain to outsiders that the economy is doing so well and the president has a lot of support in the business community for sure, yet he's being impeached and, and uh, tried in the Senate. I, it's hard to understand. Just final question, just quickly. You were in that meeting this morning with the president of the United States. Did anyone ask him about impeachment? Well, no, we, there were, that question was not asked. Not a single question. Well, it wasn't, there was no opportunity for questions really because the president came and made a uh, talk and then uh, his daughter Ivanka made a talk about uh, what she's doing in the jobs, job creation area with Tim Cook and, and Ginny Rometty. So when they finished that, it was, you know, that was the whole They kept time. the mic away from Rupert's side. <laughs> but um, I would say that that's probably not the audience that's going to probably ask those questions. It'd be my guess. Yeah. And so uh, I think the audience that would probably ask those questions are, you know, probably the press people, and they weren't in, in that room. And maybe for good reason, too. David, great to see you. My Wonderful pleasure. Thank David Rubenstein there, the Carlisle Group co-founder and co-chairman. host of peer-to-peer. -peer. And host of peer-to-peer, -peer, we should say, as well. He sits in this seat quite a lot, too. Great lineup of guests. Really pleased to say that right next to us here in Davos, Switzerland, live on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television, is James Gorman, Morgan Stanley, CEO. Mr. Gorman, good day to you. Thanks for having us, John and Tom. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. I'm still reeling from some comments we got from Bob Prince of Bridgewater 30 minutes ago, mm. who said that the boom-bust cycle as we know it is done. It's over. <clears throat> what do you say back to that? You'd have to kill uh, fear and greed, I think, for that to be true. Do you think we have done? Uh, no, I don't. I think, you know, I mean, listen, there's, there's a reason we've had cycles going back thousands of years, and I, I don't think that stops. We, we happen to be in a very benign period with relatively, relatively uh, uh, global stability and, you know, relatively strong economic growth around the world. Not spectacular, obviously, Europe's slower than the US. But, for, you know, geopolitically, this, this isn't a bad decade. But, no, I, I, I think... Um, I don't think the cycles are done. I want to get to the nuts and bolts of your bank, your operations, your strategy sure. in a moment. I also want your view on the Federal Reserve too. The balance sheet expansion. Mm. Is it QE or is it not QE? That debate is raging on Wall Street at the moment. What is James Gorman's call on that? What is it? Well, I, you know, the, the Fed only has two real tools that they're working with at the moment, and they've pretty much exhausted the rates. So that's, that's the reality. So they've only got the balance sheet that they're working with, and it is a form of QE. I mean, it has been subsidising prices. <coughs> it's, be, it's been helping the markets along, and they've done it for good reason. I mean, when they raised rates, what was it, 12, 14 months ago, uh, the markets took a scare. So I think the Fed is just bringing things back in line. What are the implications of that at the moment, if the Fed keeps saying it's not QE, but many people, including yourself, believe it is? Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Fed, is getting his head around it. He doesn't understand why people are calling it QE. You're taking a risk-free asset reserves and transferring it for another risk-free asset, T-bills. Mm. No duration involved, no risk involved. How is it QE? That's well, the, what Neil Kashkari is asking. The Fed's providing liquidity to the market, right? They're, they're providing an underpinning to say, we're here. That's basically the message. It's a message of confidence as much as it is of activity. I want to move to the triumph, which is Morgan Stanley, the X number of years under your tenure in wealth management, the margins you've received, your statements the other day of improving margins as well. Everybody in this valley wants to be James Gorman. 
everybody I know wants to get into wealth management. They want to catch up with what you saw X number of years ago. Do you worry that we will compete away the profits in the business, that if everybody gets in, like wheat farmers in Kansas, Kansas is a state, James, in the middle of the nation, if we, if we... I think James if, is familiar with He's familiar Kansas. with Kansas? You, okay. You're a if citizen we, since 2004, James. Tom. Okay, you know, well... By the way, I've got siblings who don't want to be me, so I've got <laughs> okay. everybody in this But family. if everybody wants to get into wealth management, is yeah. there a risk that you compete away the margins and the Morgan Stanley margins come down, down, down? Yeah, there's a difference between wanting to do it and being able to do it and exactly. being able to do it cost-effectively. Uh, scale matters in wealth management. We, we made that call, as and thank you, we, we made that call 10 years ago. Uh, there are some monster players in wealth management, whether it's on the direct side with what Schwab and Ameritrade have now done, uh, what Fidelity has done, obviously, and, and what the big uh, full-service firms like ours have done. It's very hard to replicate that. I mean, to be, to be a wannabe in this space is a very expensive proposition. So then how does scale go? How does the great Gorman roll-up go in the industry? What do you need to acquire? If they want to be a wannabe, they go, we want to be Gorman, and you go, you're a wannabe, we're going to take you in for value for all. Yeah. When does that process begin, it's that roll-up? There are very few assets out there that you can buy. And if you're buying them from a small base, where are you going to get the scale synergies from it? So it's really the players like us who can keep consolidating. I think, again, for entrance into this space, extremely expensive. I wouldn't recommend it. It's easy for us to sit here now and say, congratulations, James, great call. This was the right call. It was obvious. But 10 years ago, it wasn't. You made that call to scale up wealth management, pull back from fixed income trading as well. 10 years later, to Tom's point, do you need a new play? Does there mm. need to be a change in strategy after you've done that for 10 years, had the success? Or do you see the setup as it stands as having some real durability for another decade? Yeah, it's, it's a good question and something you're, you're constantly got to challenge yourself. Just because you've done and it's worked uh, doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. You know, somebody asked me this question on TV a couple of years ago and I said, what about we make some money? That's a strategy. That's when we're a sub 10% ROE. Now, the firm is operating 11% ROE, 13% ROTCE. These are good numbers. These are very solid numbers, record earnings. But no, I'm constantly looking for ways to grow, particularly wealth and asset management, without shrinking the investment bank. Our investment bank is phenomenal. Equity sales and trading, number one business in the world. Our M&A business, ECM, phenomenal businesses. But there's not obvious ways in which you'd acquire and grow in that space. Wealth and asset management, different category. Let's take ROE, raise the target. Yeah. Gave a massive lift to the stock last week. Yeah. Still some questions on how you achieve it. Yeah. How do you go about getting that target? Yeah, well, we, had, we had questions when our wealth management margins were 6% on whether we could get to 15. Yeah. And they're 28. So, you know, it's... How did you affect that game shift, though? Uh, you, you know, it's a, whole bunch of, it's a whole bunch of things from uh, restructuring the field operations to bringing more product that clients wanted to use uh, right. to providing more asset-based pricing. Uh, you know, professionalising the organisation, then obviously buying smart right. money. Let's go McKinsey, and when in hindsight that looks brilliant, let's go all McKinsey right now on you. The strategy is the following, and one of them is do nothing. Morgan Stanley, acquire banking. Morgan Stanley, build banking. Uh, there's a small firm, Goldman. They're trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is do nothing and stay focused. Which of those three is the Gorman way? Uh, well, it, it, you know, I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer, but you can't, you, you have to look at what the returns would be in the strategy. Obviously, if you could acquire a bank, to, we already have $150 billion of deposits. We're the 10th largest bank, I think, or 11th in the country. If you could acquire a bank 
at the right price under the right. Are those valuations out there right now? Can you well, go out to a regional or super the, regional? But then you've got to ask it for a specific institution. What does it really bring you? So merely acquiring a bank, there are there are in this country in the U.S. there are four thousand banks. Uh, so you've got to have something that brings real scale to the institution. Doing that has to be, uh, you know, with the right kind of economic returns versus building it yourself. Currently, Tom, what we're doing is, is number B on that list. We're building it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we're building the online presence in banking. We've got, as I said, 150 billions in deposits. We've got a huge mortgage book because our clients want to deal with Morgan Stanley. What is your distinction versus Mr. Solomon's plan at Goldman Sachs in terms of building an online presence? Well, I, I don't really want to comment on, on Goldman. That wouldn't I want you to tell yeah. me the distinction of the Gorman way versus what others are doing. Yeah. I just well, imagine Mr. Solomon won't be commenting on Mr. Gorman. But we'll ask tomorrow, anyways we'll because ask we are too. Bloomberg rude. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've set the parameters. Um, <laughs> uh, listen, but uh, I won't comment on Goldman's strategy, Please. obviously. But uh, we, we're building both uh, core capability through our financial advisors. So when you open a financial advisory relationship, why wouldn't you want your banking assets in that relationship? So if you're borrowing on margin, maybe the better decision is to take out a home equity line of credit. That's a banking product. So it's mingling of that to make it easier for the client. At the same time, we are building our digital capability to go online banking, which I guess is what some of our competitors... Where there are doubts, though, and we won't name names, let's talk about your own strategy, is whether you can build this out, get scale organically. You think we can? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we have. I mean, we've got... And look at the Solium deal we did. We've got six million clients between asset, uh, wealth management, the asset management, and then the ShareWorks program in Solium. We've got enormous scale as an organisation. What we need is mm -hmm. more product coming through it. That's really what we need and what our clients are calling for. What you just described as a future for American finance, how does it differ from the superstore concept that went down in flames decades ago? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think you've got to be very careful about building too much complexity into these institutions. Uh, number two, you've got to have management that are deal with running, are used to running and capable of running not just products, but running organizations. And historically, our industry didn't have professionalized management. They professionalized yep. super producers. Yep. So if you're going to have complexity, true. you better have management that a GE or an IBM or one of the great American companies would have a Microsoft, that kind of capability. So we're, we're investing as much time, Tom, on building management capability as we are around business. Is there strategy. room? What's the new super producer look like? To go retail, John, the super producers, how do you build new super producers, which are the lifeline of that huge revenue into the bigger profit? You give them teams. I mean, our best teams under our top producers have as many as 15, 20, 30 people working on them. Because how can I be the industry expert on foreign exchange, municipal bonds, growth stocks? Oh, that's our stocks. act, James. Right? You, you that's our act. You guys, you guys can do this. We can pretend sometimes. I'm more modest. I can't do this. And our They're in our ear. You need capability around you, right? When you go to see, when you go to see a specialist, don't you see specialists? There are groups of people who've got yeah. capabilities that make mm -hmm. up the full medical needs that we're all going to have. So I'm all about building out expertise in a collaborative, team-based approach. Optimize headcount. 1,500 jobs went yeah. year end. Yeah. Why, James? We were setting the table for the coming year, and we, you know, we, we, we've been, um, we've been cautious. Uh, that's sort of our strategy. We're disciplined and cautious. And uh, to be perfectly honest, we had very little attrition. The last couple of years, right. we've had almost no attrition. Nobody's leaving. And we got to the end of the year and we said, well, does this really add up? And we we're about to promote yeah. 130. We just promoted 130 new managing directors. You've got to right. create capacity for these folks. Speaking of promotions, number two at the bank. 
Who's it going to be? Who's going to be our number two? Yeah. Well, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you, John. When are we going to get a result? We're getting a long way. No, we, well we thought that this morning. We've got one minute left. I just wanted okay. to make some news. When, no, are, we gonna, we're, when we're, are we going to find we'll out? We'll eventually name a president or presidents. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm committed, and I think you guys have reported and others have reported. We've got, we've got a tremendous team of folks who are in their late 40s, early 50s. Our David Weston is relaunching Wall Street Week. Uh, part of what you Lewis do... Lou Rukeyser, yeah. Part of what you do is to bring the fabric of what Lou Rukeyser did years yeah. ago back. Can we make investment fun again like Lou did years ago? How did the nation do that? He made it a conversation rather than a series of, you know, he, he, he took people away from what the daily movement in the prices were mm -hmm. and he made the conversation around thematics, around personalities, around larger trends, and that made it okay. much more interesting. I think just seeing the endless... Uh, you know, series of numbers getting thrown at you. The, yeah. the public, they, they numb over. Sounds like, sounds like the surveillance manifesto. James Gorman, thank you so much. Great. He is with Morgan Stanley. James, thank you. Thanks for having Chief me. Executive Officer as well. There's been interview after interview of heated debate about what do you do after bond price up, yield down, equity prices to the moon. I mean, is, is Apple up another $100 billion today? We'll know at the market opening. Let's bring in Scott Martis, shall we? Guggenheim Partners, Global CIO. We're bookending two radically different comments. One from you to start the week. Right. Basically saying this market was like a Ponzi scheme. Right. And we end the week, middle of the week so far, with Bob Prince of Bridgewater saying, it's the end of the boom-bust cycle yeah. as we know it. Yeah, I find that really interesting because, first off, Bridgewater, the people there are very smart. Smart money. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, if you take the history of the United States since the, the late 70s, um, I would call monetary policy a policy of bubble to bubble. For instance, you know, to save the, the, the economy after the stock market crash, Right, the Fed cut rates and overinflated commercial real estate, and then we had to bail out the banks with the Resolution Trust Corporation. So then once things calmed down again, investors no longer thought that commercial real estate was safe, and they inflated the internet bubble to the wealth effect to keep the economy going. And then of course it went bust, and so then people didn't feel safe in stocks, so they started buying homes. And we, we played that out and, and it bust. And so we're, 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 my attitude is when you look at the amount of leverage uh, in corporate America uh, and where we are today, you've, you, you definitely are inflating a bubble here in credit. Well, let's talk about the quote that you sent out to clients. A long note. I've read it. Here's a quote from it. The timing is hard to predict, but it reminds me a lot of the lead up to 2001 and 2002. Then you pointed out the term Ponzi scheme, where the only reason investors keep adding to risk is the fear that prices will be higher tomorrow. Right. With that in mind, you've made this call. Are you de-risking or are you staying long risk? What well, are you doing? You know, I got to tell you something. We, we started de-risking back in 2018. And uh, I can tell you that I was an investment genius in 2018. Uh, but when the Fed pivoted, you had to ask yourself a question. Uh, and and, and a, I'm guided a lot by behavioral finance and the work of, of Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, one of the biggest mistakes asset managers or asset allocators make is they try to do too many tactical trades. And so what Danny would say is, look five years into the future, what do you see coming? And don't change what you're doing to try to catch a, tac tac a tactical move. 
So, you know, mm -hmm. and so in, in uh, 2019, as an investment manager, I looked like an idiot uh, because we've trailed uh, a lot of other people who've basically just said, hey, you know, wave in corporate debt, wave in high yield, uh, you know, let's go for it. And, uh, you know, someday, you know, the music will stop. But Is it's, the it's elasticity tough. when the music stops something anyone can manage, including smaller investors listening on Bloomberg Radio, watching on Bloomberg TV? Is the elasticity or malleability of the system there so we can respond and react when we get that? Or is it a jump condition where it's going to be ugly? Well, you know, one of, one of my colleagues at Guggenheim likes to say that asset prices go up on an escalator and they come down Log normal and Absolutely. they come down in an yeah. elevator yeah. right so the, the problem is since no nobody i know is smart enough to figure out when the music stops you know uh i think that's a really difficult thing for people to try to to time and uh you know here as an example if two days from now or early next week uh, there's an announcement from the Federal Reserve or in the Fed meeting on Wednesday that they're thinking about tapering the bill purchase program. Remember what happened when we talked about tapering QE in 2013? Oh, we didn't even the, need the, the act. There was a taper tantrum, and this is going to be called the minor tantrum. <laughs> Carry on. Is this QE then? James Cole oh, Morgan Stanley absolutely. sat in your seat, said exactly the same thing. Yeah, Many people disagree with you, though. Well, I, I mean, i got to tell you something. When I talk to people at the Fed and other believers that don't think this is QE, they say, oh, well, the Fed isn't buying longer term duration assets uh, to affect the shape of the term structure of interest rates. And my response to that is, look, I think the official name of QE is large scale asset purchases, right? And this looks like large scale. Well, asset I spoke purchases, to Ken, and John, right? this is important. I spoke to Ken Rogoff two hours ago in a panel here at WEF, and he alluded definitely to what Mr. Minard's saying the idea that, look, it's QE, it's not QE, doesn't matter. The fact is they're affecting the process, which changes the behavior of the market. This debate's well, going nowhere, Scott. What I want to try and understand is, what is the risk of getting it wrong? Well, I What's think the risk of look, saying it's QE if it's not QE, and what's the risk of saying it's not QE when it is QE? Is this just well, debate, a debate just to have behind closed doors, well, or does I it think, actually look, matter? I, I, I think whatever label we put on it, the consequences are the same. And that is that when you put liquidity into the system and you create money, which is what the central bank yeah. is doing, it doesn't matter what you buy. You could buy baseball cards. Right? But that liquidity leaks out into other asset categories. And so you get inflated prices in other areas. And you know, as I've talked about in the recent piece, corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with central banks in Europe and, and Asia running negative interest rates and the Fed pumping out liquidity, right. you know, it just the, the incremental stretch for yield just keeps compressing yeah. risk assets. John, I invested in baseball cards years ago. I failed. I bought, I bought oil can Boyd where I should have bought Lenny should Dykstra. Should have waited for the Fed to buy those. <laughs> I want to well, get no, to the, the, it's the baseball to, to John's, program. To, to John's <laughs> question about the news you've made here, Scott Minard, about a Ponzi scheme. That assumes under Ponzi, under what we know of Bernie Madoff, there's someone ill out there. There's someone evil. There's someone bordering on civil or criminal violation. Who is that right. person within well, the Minard Ponzi scheme? Look, well, I mean, I'm not so sure that uh, when Hyman Minsky framed the, the comment about a Ponzi market, mm -hmm. uh, that he was thinking that there was some nefarious activity going on. It's more of a, an investor behavior, uh, which is being encouraged, if you want to find out. By who? By the Fed. Because we're just, you know, every time, look, there was a debate 
back in December, you know, do we have a Powell put, right? We do. It was delivered, silver platter. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're operating back in that mode again. Before you go, we need a conviction trade. Big calls, made a lot of headlines. Right. Where do you put your money? What's the number one conviction trade right now for you, 2020? Uh, silver. Silver? Mm -hmm. Silver? Yeah. Why not gold? Uh, because when you look at the relative values of silver and gold, uh, silver today is about, uh, let's say, 60, 65% below its prior peak. Gold is, is getting very close to its prior peak. Can it go exponential like we've seen in some of the non-precious metals? Uh, I think there's a high probability of that. Scott Minot, fantastic conversation. What? A lot of headlines made this week from the Guggenheim Global CIO. Shanali Basik joining us from uh, Davos. It seems like yesterday, global warming, uh, climate change on the forefront. Today, the focus moving more to markets with monetary policy in, uh, in focus. Can you give us a sense of just the mood uh, today as people speak about the economy, which is generally good, and the interest rate policy, which still remains concerning to them? Yeah, it's funny, Lisa, because what's generally good, we're definitely seeing a lot of some of the, um, you know, the high minds here thinking of very significant risks in the market and credit markets in particular, a lot of uh, bad feelings towards central bankers here. Of course, negative interest rates are really causing a lot of European banks to bleed and uh, offset some of these costs to consumers. And once they offset those costs to consumers, it becomes unclear to a lot more people how good it is for the economy. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve's policy, a lot of folks believe that, you know, while the low interest rates have inflated asset prices, that there could be real issues in the future. We talked to CEO of Barclays, Jess Staley, who had said, you know, Oxford just issued a 100-year bond at a little over 2%, and I don't think that's a good, a good thing. Interesting, Shanali, we saw earlier uh, this week uh, numbers out of UBS disappointing once again. What's the feeling over in Davos as it relates to just kind of the European banking sector? You're you know, talking about negative interest rates. Awful tough way to uh, kind of run a bank. For sure. And it depends on who you're talking to. I, I had mentioned Just Daily before, and there's some optimism there around the investment bank, which uh, is surprising because just a year ago, everybody was a little worried across Wall Street about the investment banking businesses. But the trading figures in the fourth quarter for the big U.S. banks was a blowout. Meanwhile, over at UBS, wealth management is tied to market sentiment. Of course, uh, they want to expand very aggressively in lending. They're really worried about uh, interest rates, and they're worried about uh, growing their their, their net new money at a time when growth has been slowing generally around the world. Remember at UBS, their U.S. assets have been kind of sluggish where they really brought in a lot of these assets in, in China where we're seeing another host of issues. So right now it seems like uh, the banking sector has been challenged by negative interest rates. Was there anything positive that people said considering the fact that we currently are facing an economy that seems to be copacetic? Oh boy, I was looking for the bad stuff. I have to be honest. Well, no, I, mean, I know. We, I'm, I'm looking. You know, that's that's typically uh, how it works, right? <laughs> People are looking for the for sort of what, what's the problem that we're not foreseeing. But I'm wondering, are we going to see an unexpected upside? I mean, honestly, that's sort of the the sort of flip side of all of the pessimism that we've seen over the past decade has been that people have been caught off guards by the positive. And I'm wondering, the banking sector, having been so beaten up, at least when it comes to the stock price, uh, could there be 
a perhaps surprise on the upside if the economy continues to stabilize? Or is the fundamental business model, or were they basically saying the fundamental business model is so challenged by negative interest rates, by the overhang of debt that hasn't been gotten rid of or whatever from uh, yeah. from another era, that it's going to be hard regardless? Listen, the one thing that's surprising uh just in general, remember Trump is here. That's changed the entire tone of Davos. People are falling around Trump. Wilbur Ross is just sitting in the main lobby. And everybody is, and remember, bank CEOs were all with Trump just this morning. Apparently at the dinner last night with Trump, everybody was really just going around the table talking about how they use the tax cuts, that they're creating jobs. And today I heard somebody tell me, they're like, you know what? If Europe starts to do a fiscal stimulus to the likes of the US, then we could be in a much better place. And so you're asking the upside. It's like, yeah, we have to look for bad things here because all of these guys think things are pretty rosy. There's not a whole we, we really have to dig when we talk to these folks about what the and again, there are really significant risks out there. But generally, the tone here is good and people don't believe that there are huge risks. And I think that Trump, frankly, has been received very with a very friendly audience here in Davos. Uh, Shrinali, there I've seen reports from Bloomberg News that there are about 117 billionaires in Davos this week, so it's a good time. 119. To, 119. Yes. Okay, 119. So it's a good time to be a private banker, and we're seeing across the uh, global financial services business businesses focus on private wealth management. Is that a trend that when you listen to these bank CEOs that were speaking to Bloomberg uh, Radio and TV this morning, is that a trend that is likely to continue? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's funny because a lot of the billionaires in Davos are not even coming to the World Economic Forum and bankers at UBS, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs. They're all here because you can just have dinners at night or just around town. It's beautiful. It's 40 degrees here right now, Fahrenheit. And so, yes, private banking is still a very big business because right now the world's billionaires are also owners of major assets and major companies. Yeah. And so if you're looking at investment banking, if you you buddy up with a billionaire, you're able to advise them on how they sell their company, how they take out a loan against it. Are there margin loans involved? Right. Uh, how do they structure their 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 assets? What's tax efficient? There's just so many ways to use this clientele. Shanali Basik uh, with some advice. Just buddy up with a billionaire and you should be fine. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Shanali Basik uh, over in Davos uh, for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.